0: We're going to read the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, the first 17 verses. This is the word of the living God. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, Batamah. Haraz was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nation, and Nation the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, Ammon the father of Josiah, and Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abahud, Abahud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliad, Eliad was the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Matthan the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Let's pray. Long foretold, Lord Jesus, long in our time, forever in your time, We long to hear and to know You through Your Word. I pray as Tom preaches and tells us the things that were foretold of You and how You fulfilled them all, Lord, I pray that You would write it in our hearts, that it might strengthen the saints and be useful to us in sharing Your good name with a world that doesn't know You. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Good morning. Come, thou long-expected Jesus. That's what this is about. Long expected. After the uh, introductory message last week, uh, a few of you came up and, and talked to me and mentioned some things that you've seen in the Old Testament that foreshadow Christ. And those conversations could go on for a very long time. Uh, what, what those conversations did last week is they reminded me that I hadn't done a very good job last time of explaining the scope of this series of what we're actually going to do. Um, You would be hard-pressed to find anything in the Old Testament that isn't tied to Jesus in some form because it's all about him. Jesus is foreshadowed through many events in the lives of Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, Boaz, all the Old Testament prophets... And many others. Every detail of the system of worship under the law of Moses foreshadowed Christ. The tabernacle, the items in the tabernacle, the items outside the tabernacle, the priests, the priestly garments, every single sacrifice in the Mosaic system of worship, the feasts. Yes, the Day of Atonement, the Passover. And Christ fulfills every single covenant promise that God made with his people in the Old Testament. All of them. The Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, got those out of order, and the new covenant. They are all fulfilled in Christ. I could say a lot more about this, but I think you get the point. Uh, As Jesus said to the Jews in John 5, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you find eternal life. It is these Old Testament scriptures that bear witness to me. That's what the Old Testament is about. It's about God's plan of redemption fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So since I build this as a short series, I had to limit the scope. Otherwise we'd be here for years. <laughs> so we're not going to look at the many foreshadowings of Christ we're focused on just a couple of things. The goal of this series is to look at direct references in the Old Testament that speak of Christ, that point to Christ, so that we might see two things demonstrated very clearly. First, that Jesus is the Christ. He is the long-promised Messiah who is spoken of throughout the entire Old Testament. And secondly, that the Gospel, the incomparably good news of forgiveness and restoration to God only through Christ's atoning death and victorious resurrection is the same Gospel in both Testaments, and it is crystal clear in the Old Testament. The reason that it was not readily acknowledged in the Old Testament had nothing to do with whether or not God made it clear. Jesus is the long-promised Christ, And the salvation that comes only through Him is clearly proclaimed in both testaments of God's Word. This morning, what we're going to look at especially is the ever-narrowing line from Adam to Jesus that passes through David. The Old Testament presents a laser-like focus on one end point, and that end point is Christ. One of the clearest demonstrations of that constant focus on the Messiah, the Christ, is the continual narrowing of God's line of choice from one generation of mankind to the next throughout the entire Old Testament from Adam all the way to Christ. The first part of that line is laid out in Genesis chapter 5 from Adam to Noah. It begins with Adam, it proceeds through just one of the descendants of Noah in each generation, filtering out all others until it gets to Noah. And then, of course, came the flood, and things got really narrow at that point. God's worldwide judgment on man and all of creation. Then mankind started to expand again. (laughs) The table of nations in Genesis chapter 10 recounts the grand expansion of mankind during the time from Noah to Terah, the father of Abraham. But during that grand expansion, the line of God's choosing continued to narrow. The line leading to Christ proceeded through just one of the descendants of Noah in each generation until it came to Abraham in Genesis chapter 11. The Gospel of Matthew opens up the New Testament with the genealogy of Jesus beginning from Abraham and taking us all the way to Christ. That genealogy passes through Jesus' earthly father, Joseph. Now Joseph was not the biological father of Christ. That's fundamental to the Christian faith. The virgin birth of Jesus conceived by the Holy Spirit But it was entirely appropriate and legitimate for Matthew to trace the lineage of Jesus through his earthly father, his adopted father, if you will, adoptive father, because that's how lineage was traced, through the father, even if you were adopted. Matthew very intentionally introduces his genealogy of Jesus by starting in the middle, he starts with David, and then he backs up to Abraham. It's the only genealogy in the Bible that does that. And there's a reason for it. He says in verse 1, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Then in verse 2, he goes back to Abraham, and he works his way to Jesus through David, the genealogy is divided into three parts. First, Abraham to David. Then David to the deportation or exile into Babylon of Judah. And finally, from the Babylonian exile to Jesus. Matthew was very selective about whom he includes in this genealogy. He does not cover every single generation, and that's intentional. He does three groups of 14, and his point... His very important purpose is to demonstrate that the lineage of Jesus Christ was laid out, it was very linear, it was going on all the way through the Old Testament, and it goes through King David. He mentions David twice. David is in two of the groups of 14, at the end of one and at the beginning of the next. He considers Jesus' connection with David to be supremely important, and that is something that we all need to understand. We're going to see prophecies next week. We're going to look at passages next week that speak of my servant David long after David died. And they're talking about Christ. And we're going to see that throughout the the progress of Revelation regarding the coming long-promised Messiah, David is the centerpiece of that revelation and Jesus is the end point. If, in fact, the long-promised Messiah, the King and Redeemer, foretold throughout the Old Testament prophets, had not turned out to be descended from David in his humanness, you could dispense with all of the Bibles ever written and printed because they would be lies. Nothing is more repeatedly or emphatically declared About the King and Savior of Israel and of all mankind than that He is the promised seed of David. Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, following the Old Testament record exactly, proceeds from Abraham to Isaac, and it sets aside, it sets aside Abraham's other son Ishmael, and then it proceeds from Isaac to Jacob, setting aside Jacob's other son Esau the line of choice that leads to the promised Messiah continues in each generation to narrow. Then, after Jacob becomes the father of twelve sons, who in turn become the patriarchs of the twelve tribes of Israel, the narrowing continues. And this is where it gets a little surprising. If the Bible had been contrived by men, Jewish men, To advance the nationalistic faith of Israel, then once you arrive at the twelve tribes of Israel, the narrative should, it should go like this. It should trace what happened with those twelve tribes in detail from then on. And at some level, the Old Testament does that. It does talk about what happened with each of these twelve sons at some level. but not at the level that would be warranted if that was the focus of the Old Testament. The books of Kings and Chronicles and the prophetic books speak of the twelve tribes becoming divided into two nations. Ten tribes in the north called Israel, two tribes in the south called Judah, The kings of both parts of that divided kingdom are traced up to the point at which Israel is carried away into captivity by Assyria and Judah is carried away into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. But throughout the Old Testament, starting at the beginning with the books of Moses, there is another thread that becomes clearer and clearer as God's revelation through the Old Testament unfolds. And that thread demanded that the line of God's choosing not expand when the twelve tribes came into existence, but instead demanded that it continue to narrow. And this is one of the very, the very fascinating and, and really critical things that you find in the Old Testament is that It narrows to Judah. Now, one of the first evidences that that was going to happen is way back in Moses in Genesis chapter 49, which is the patriarchal blessing of Jacob upon his twelve sons. In the Old Testament, when a, when a father speaks, when he bestows his patriarchal blessing on his sons, he is speaking prophetically. This happens over and over. And what he says sticks. Because God is the one who is orchestrating the blessing that comes from His mouth. In Genesis chapter 49, Jacob goes in birth order, and then he gets to Judah. And here's what he says to Judah. He says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies, necks of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. Your father's sons will bow down to you. Then he says, Judah is a young lion. My son, you return from the kill. He crouches. He lies down like a lion and like a lioness. Who wants to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he whose right it is comes and the obedience of the peoples belongs to him. He ties his donkey to a vine and the colt of his donkey to the choice vine. He washes his clothes in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth are whiter than milk. In just five verses, Jacob declares several critically important truths about Judah, one of the twelve sons, that will play out throughout the rest of Scripture in both Testaments. First, he declares that the other sons of Jacob will bow down to Judah. (laughs) But it wouldn't just be the other tribes of, of Israel that would bow down to Judah, because he says that when the one comes to whom the right of rulership belongs, the peoples will bow down to him. And the word peoples is plural, and it means not just Israel, it means the nations. It's an extraordinary promise. To Him, the obedience of the peoples of the earth will belong. According to the very strong tradition of that era, which son was supposed to receive the preeminent blessing and become the leader of the family after the death of the father? The firstborn. Everybody knows that, right? Judah was not the firstborn. He was the fourthborn. Reuben, it says, was disqualified because he slept with his father's concubines. But okay, so it wasn't the firstborn. What about the secondborn, Simeon? Or the thirdborn, Levi? No, it wasn't those guys. If it wasn't based on birth order, then then based on what had happened leading up to that patriarchal blessing, leading up to Genesis 49, based on what had just happened to the family of Jacob throughout all of the Joseph stories, who do you think would have been given the blessing of preeminence if it wasn't the firstborn? You think maybe Joseph, who had just been used by God to rescue not only the entire family of Jacob, but the entire empire of Egypt from seven years of catastrophic famine? wasn't Joseph. It was Judah. The blessing that Jacob bestowed on Judah promised that he would conquer all his enemies, he would rule over Israel and over all the nations, and would bring in a time of great abundance. The imagery in verse 11 speaks of vines and wine and milk in great abundance. And and beloved, if you go through the Old Testament and you... Look up those words in a concordance and see what is said about them. You will find that that the idea of an abundance of of wine and milk and the fruit of the vine is chronically, constantly associated with the promises of the coming of Messiah and and the institution of his glorious kingdom. Read Isaiah 24 and 25. It's just one of many examples. And that imagery, of course, persists into the New Testament. The line of God's choosing continued through Judah. It continued from Judah to Perez, and from Perez through several generations to Boaz, who was the gracious, compassionate kinsman-redeemer in the book of Ruth, who married Ruth and gave birth to Obed, The line of choice then proceeded from Obed to Jesse and then from Jesse to David, the king of Israel and Judah. David is the centerpiece of God's line of choice and Jesus is the end point and fulfillment of that line. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, David resolved to build a house for God, a temple. And God said he really didn't need a house built by men. But he did agree to let David's son build that house, and David's son Solomon did build the temple. But but guys, the construction of that physical temple paled in comparison with importance to the purpose of God to fulfill a promise that he was just about to make to David having to do with a king who was going to come later. And it wouldn't be Solomon. Here's what he said. Here's what God told the prophet Nathan to say to King David. He said, Now therefore you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture and from the sheep that you should be ruler over my people Israel. I'm I'm just going to bounce off the track for just a second and say, look at all the things in the Gospels that have to do with Jesus as the good shepherd, the shepherd king. And then go back and look at the centerpiece of the line leading to Jesus. He was a shepherd before he was a king. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. I have cut off all your enemies before you, and I will make you a great name like the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people, and I will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. You remember what he said to Judah? Basically, your foot will be on the neck of your enemies. Your enemies will be subdued. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. David wanted to make a house for God and God said, no, I'm going to make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for you a descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish His kingdom. And He will build a house for My name. And beloved, it won't be a physical temple. And it won't be Solomon." Solomon was the short-term fulfillment of this promise. But this promise persisted long after Solomon died. It is referred to in the New Testament time after time after time when Solomon is long in his his grave. He shall build a house for my name, the household of the living God, and I will establish the throne of His kingdom forever. Forever. We'll see next week that just in case someone thinks that the word forever means perpetual, in Isaiah 9 it says from then on and forevermore. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. And here's the part that freaks a lot of people out. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men, but my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you, And your house, David, and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Notice how many times he says forever. Now I'm jumping ahead here some and we're going to talk about this later in another message, but I want to address something at this point so it doesn't cause a mental block for anybody, I hope. If your mind works like mine does, when you get to verse 14... Your immediate big red flag goes up and says, well, that can't be about Christ because Jesus never sinned. And you're right. Jesus never sinned. But beloved, I think one of the, one of the things that causes us to, to misunderstand many Old Testament passages that are pointing to Christ is that we do not readily understand and embrace just how absolutely Jesus took our sin upon Himself. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul said that God made Him who knew no sin, sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. When Jesus died on the cross, He didn't merely bear the penalty of your sin and mine. He bore the guilt of your sin and mine. And on that day... What God saw in His own beloved Son was all of the wretchedness of our guilt and our shame and our sin. And that's what Jesus died to pay for. So guys, if we really understand that the promised Messiah is the promised Redeemer, that He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, it shouldn't surprise us to read those words. God speaks often through the Old Testament prophecies of punishing the very one who is going to come to be our king of punishing him for sin but it's not his sin it's ours god's promise and we're going to spend a lot more time on the substitutionary atonement of christ one of these messages will be at least one will be all about christ the long promised sacrifice God's promise to David to raise up a descendant, singular, a seed, singular, from him whose kingdom would last forever is one of the most clearly and most emphatically Christ-focused promises in the whole Bible. That promise was given to David sometime around 1000 B.C., Hundreds of years later, long after David and his son Solomon had died, the Old Testament prophets were still writing about the great and coming king who would fulfill the promise that God made to King David. The line of God's choosing proceeded in the Old Testament from David through one generation, through one person in each generation of David's descendants until it comes to Christ. Now, in that second section of Matthew's genealogy, he takes, he takes the genealogy of Jesus from David to the Babylonian exile. And I want you just, I want to show you one little thing from one little passage in the Old Testament in which the prophet Jeremiah is speaking on God's behalf and he's rebuking one of the last kings in the line of Judah. By the way, that list of names reads like our 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles narrative of the kings of Judah. Okay. There are some names missing because David is selective about his genealogy, but the, the names match up. One of the final, one of the last kings of Judah was named Jehoiachin or Jeconiah. Short version of his name was Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim. In Jeremiah 22, verses 24-30, to 30, God said to Kaniah, As I live, declares the Lord, even though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would pull you off. Remember that image. And I will give you over into the hand of those who are seeking your life. Yes, into the hand of those whom you dread. Even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon and into the hands of the Chaldeans. I shall hurl you and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you will die. But as for the land to which they desire to return, they will not return to it. Just a couple of verses later in verse 30. It says, Thus says the Lord, Write this man down as if childless a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. The last of the kings of Judah was Jeconiah's uncle, Zedekiah, who also rebelled against God. During his 11-year reign, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, besieged and conquered Jerusalem, a year and a half siege. And then he took the inhabitants of the city, including Zedekiah, into captivity to Babylon, and the period of the kings came to an end. But the line leading to God's promised Redeemer King did not come to an end. Psalm 89 is fascinating because Psalm... I'm not going to put it up here, but go look at it. Psalm 89 rehearses the promises that God made to David in 2 Samuel 7 and then laments the fact that the kings are gone. And that it looks like God's not fulfilling his promise. But then it prays to the God who is faithful and affirms that he will fulfill his promise. You with me? This is important. The line leading to God's promised redeemer king did not end when the period of the kings ended. Because God told David his descendant, singular, <laughs> would rule on his throne forever and God does not lie. The Old Testament prophets acted as God's God's messengers throughout the period of the kings, throughout the time of the exiles, and for a good while after the time of the exiles. Those prophets spoke often and with perfect consistency about the Redeemer King, the descendant of David, who would fulfill everything that God had promised to King David. Through the prophets, God added a whole lot of detail and, and vividness to those promises back in 2 Samuel 7. He, talk, he told us all kinds of things about the kingdom that's coming and about its glorious king. At the end of Judah's 70 years of captivity in Babylon, God opened the way for the Jewish exiles to return to the land of promise and rebuild the city and the temple at that time I'm going to give you another little snippet snapshot here at that time God raised up another ruler from the tribe of Judah and the line of David a man named Zerubbabel son of Shealtiel God stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and of a high priest named Joshua which is the Hebrew precursor to the name Jesus He stirred them up to finish the rebuilding of the temple that had been interrupted some time before But God's choice of a man to rebuild the physical temple was always far less important than his plan of redemption to bring forth the promised king in the line of David who would build the household of God in earnest, in truth, in justice, in righteousness forever. In the very last verses of Haggai, we find an amazing declaration that Zerubbabel definitely didn't expect. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai the prophet on the 24th day of the month saying, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. And I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of kingdoms of the nations. I will overthrow the chariots and their riders. The horses and their riders will go down, everyone by the sword of another. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring. I will put you on like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares Yahweh of hosts. So even after the time of Israel's and Judah's kings ended, the line of God's choosing continued, and Zerubbabel was right in the middle of that last part of the line leading to Jesus. But Zerubbabel was not a warrior. He was the governor in Jerusalem at a time when he he was made pretty nervous by some of the resistance that was being given to the rebuilding of the temple. He did not accomplish or experience in his lifetime anything like the mighty judgments against other kings and nations that God was somehow associating with him through this amazing prophecy given through Haggai. So what does the prophecy mean? It means the same kind of thing that God meant when he promised David that he would have a man on his throne forever. It meant Zerubbabel was in the line of David's descendants that would lead to the one who would fulfill all of these terrible and wonderful prophecies. The line that would continue from generation to generation until it culminated in one man, the long-promised Messiah, the King of Kings, the Christ the Son of God and Son of Man and Son of David, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Jesus. Matthew's genealogy of Jesus includes Zerubbabel. Listen as I read these verses and see if you can detect, it's not hard, but see if you can detect what makes the inclusion of Zerubbabel in this line of promise leading to Jesus so extraordinary. After the deportation to Babylon, to Jeconiah was born Shealtiel and to Shealtiel Zerubbabel. And then I won't go through all the names, but it ends in verse 16. To Jacob was born Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. What makes God's inclusion of Zerubbabel in that line so extraordinary? Jeconiah does. Remember he said to Kaniah, to Jeconiah, I will take you off like a signet ring and no one from your lineage will rule over the throne of David. It was the worst thing that could happen to a king of Judah who was descended from David is to be excluded from the line leading to Messiah. And it's amazing that God uses the exact same imagery of the signet ring, having used that imagery to announce the removal The exclusion of Jeconiah from the, from the line of choice, he now declares to Zerubbabel that he's undoing that removal. That he's restoring Zerubbabel to the line that leads to Christ. Beloved, that's no small matter considering that we're talking about the outworking of God's eternal decree decree to raise up his promised Messiah. If we understand that the story of the long-promised king from the line of David is the story of the redeemer of mankind from sin, then this twist is not at all surprising. The God who orchestrated all of this is the same God who told the people of Judah in Jeremiah 30 that the wound that he had inflicted on them because of their sin was incurable. And then a few verses later he said, I'll cure it. This is the God of redemption. This is the God who is building a kingdom, a household, through His promised Messiah that's made up of people who all start out as sinners. And the King is perfect and holy and righteous. And the kingdom is the place in which righteousness dwells and there won't be anybody unrighteous in it. So how do you get a population for that kingdom when everybody starts out as sinners. You have to have a Redeemer. You have to have a Savior. And beloved, the the long-promised king in the line of David is the long-promised Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one who restores when restoration is impossible with men. God does this kind of thing fairly often. He told Moses he was going to destroy Israel and Moses called out to him on the basis of his character and he pardoned Israel. He let a generation die in the wilderness, but he fed a manna every single day for 40 years and didn't let the shoes on their feet wear out. He's a God of grace. He's a God of redemption. He's a God of restoration. He's a God who says, I will plant you in the land with my whole heart and my whole soul. In Jeremiah 32, he's a God who loves to redeem. The line leading to Jesus according to the flesh is filled with sinners who desperately needed the redemption that Christ alone would accomplish, sinners like you and me and all the people that we ever talk to. We have the privilege of telling him about this person. That included David, of course. (laughs) The, the first son of David in the line that led to Jesus was Solomon, and he was the offspring of David's relationship with a woman whose husband he had conspired to murder to hide his adultery with that woman. How does a man like that get in the line of God's promised righteous Messiah? That Messiah is a Redeemer. Uh, We're going to have a lot more to see uh, of the Old Testament's proclamation of Christ and of the gospel of salvation through Christ in in the weeks to come. If you think we saw a lot of Scripture this week, you'll have to tighten your seatbelt next Sunday because we are going to see passage after passage after passage in which the prophets spoke of the coming of God's Redeemer King in the line of David. And I'm going to just very briefly plant a seed here. I'm going to give you one facet one of the most predictable and reliable facets of all of that body of prophecy that we're going to see many times as we proceed through the rest of this series. And I'm going to ask you to watch for this simple but critically important truth about the Old Testament promises concerning the long-promised Christ. Here's that truth. Are you ready for it? From the beginning of the Old Testament to the end of it, the connection between the coming King... And the coming redemption from sin is absolutely unavoidable and crystal clear and repeated and emphasized over and over and over. I said early in this message the fact that, that Israel and many others miss the gospel of redemption from sin through the promised Messiah in the Old Testament is not because God wasn't clear about it. The story of God's promised Messiah is the story of God creating a people for his own possession to dwell with them forever. It's the promise of a perfectly righteous king and of a kingdom populated by men and women and children made fit to live forever with that perfectly holy and righteous king in his marvelous kingdom. It's a story of cleansing from sin, of hearts made new, of rebels made children of the living God, qualified only by the merits of their savior and Messiah, to live together with each other, enjoying him, as our highest good for all eternity. The Old Testament promise of the Messiah King is the very same message as the New Testament gospel of forgiveness and eternal life by grace alone through faith alone in Jesus the Christ alone. Loving Father, we thank you for the for the marvelous, incomparable unity of your word. This is a book that cannot be the device of men. It makes no sense to think that it is. What a marvelous, marvelous truth you have set before us through, through dozens of men living over 1,500 years with perfect speaking, with perfect consistency about the same person from beginning to end. Oh, Father, let us not, let us not take lightly what you have handed to us, what men died to hand to us, the living and active Word of God that tells us about the incarnate Word of God. Father, teach us to, to delight in beholding you in your Word in both Testaments of beholding and getting Getting to know the One who is our light, our Redeemer, our very life. We ask it in His precious name. Amen.